Second John. You say, uh, preacher, where is that? Well, it's right after First John. Amen. And you say, well, what if I go too far? Well, if you get to Third John, you went too far. So, if you can just put the crosshairs right in between First and Second or First and Third John, and you can't miss it. Second uh, John tonight, and uh, this book is we we say little book. It is not little in its impact. It's not little in its content. Uh, but it is a brief book. It is a short, uh, we could maybe use the term missive, this uh, little short note. I thought whenever I was reading it uh, today, I thought, you know, this sounds a lot like notes of encouragement that sometimes pastors will write. I, uh, it's something I'm not the best at. I wish I did a better job, but there's been times in my ministry when I've both written and received just little notes from people, words of encouragement. And uh, when you read the second epistle of John, that's almost how it reads. It is It is an epistle that is written from John the Apostle uh, to a lady. Her name is not given. Uh, I, there are some that believe that the uh, term lady here is symbolic of the church at large. I don't believe that. I don't think if you did believe that, it would be the worst thing that could mess you up. But uh, if you want my opinion about it, I don't believe it's a uh, letter that is just sort of symbolically written to the church at large. But I think it was written to a distinct person. And uh, part of the reason I think that is because some of the things that John says about uh, her children walking in truth and about her testimony of truth. Now, I hope that's true about the church. I'll tell you this today, as regarding modern Christendom, if we can use that term, I don't think we could say the church is walking in truth today. I hope that's true of Walridge, and I believe it's true of Walridge and a lot of places where the Word of God is exalted and magnified and emphasized. But sad truth is, in this day that we live in, truth is not given much uh, much high currency. It's not given much value today uh, in the days that we live in. We all thought when the internet came along it was going to make truth more valuable. And uh, I, I wonder sometimes if it hadn't had the opposite effect. Amen. Uh, what, what's going to happen to all these dollars the government's printing? The government just keeps printing and printing and printing and printing and printing. That makes every dollar in your pocket worth less. Amen. Well, it's sort of the same way when it comes to the matter of information. There's such a there's such a vast amount of information out there. It feels like you're drinking from a fire hydrant sometimes. Uh, but I'm glad there's a place we can go, aren't you? I'm glad there's a source of truth, unmitigated, unperverted, uh, uncorrupted in every way, shape, fashion, and form. This precious King James Bible is exactly what God wants it to be. I don't just have a word from God. I have the words of God. Amen. And I don't have to wonder which parts are good. Amen. I know it's all good, including uh, this short epistle of Second John. So let's begin reading in verse number one. We'll read down to the end. Most of the time, if I told you we're going to start at the first verse of the book and end at the last verse, you just turn around and leave. But I, I hope you won't do that tonight. So Second John, verse number one, the word of God says, the elder unto the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that the Holy Ghost would help us to rightly divide the word of truth, Lord. Not that we do it, but God, I pray that he would rightly divide it in our hearts and in our minds, that you would guide us into all truth as, Lord, the Holy Spirit's function and office is to guide us into all truth, to teach us all things. Lord, I pray 
that as we approach your word tonight, we would not approach it through uh, man's wisdom or man's intuition or man's opinion, Lord, but that we would seek only to know what you have said, what you have taught. For Lord, we know that when we know that, we'll be transformed more into the image of Christ, that you'll get the glory and we'll be the better for it. Lord, we love you and thank you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give special attention tonight to verse number 8. The Apostle John says this and gives this warning uh, to the recipient of this letter. It says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight that we lose not those things which we have wrought. Now, the first thing we're going to have to do if we're going to understand what John is talking about here is we're going to have to determine what those things are. Uh, there are some that would approach this passage and suggest that this is talking about salvation. I can tell you right out the gate it's not talking about salvation. Uh, now, you say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Well, uh, try this on for size because everywhere else in the Bible you can't lose your salvation. Why could you lose it here if you can't lose it anywhere else in the Bible? Somebody say amen right there. Uh, why, if salvation is the work of God and God alone, why would we come here and describe it as something that we have wrought or something we have performed, something that we have created? And then he says this, that we receive a full reward. I tell you this, we're not waiting to enjoy the benefits of our salvation. We're already enjoying the benefits of our salvation. So any way you try to cut it, I think you're going to have a hard time trying to shoehorn this verse into being a verse that supports the idea that a person can lose their salvation. Of course, as Bible believers, we know that's not true. Uh, we know all through the Word of God, it teaches that uh, God does the saving. We merely permit Him to by placing our faith in Him and that he, he brings about a finished work of salvation in the lives of believers. But we're then left with this question tonight. If it's not talking about salvation, what exactly is it talking about? Well, I could give you a, a number of different possibilities, but let me just give you the right answer plainly from the Word of God. And it's found in the first four verses leading up to this. Listen to what John says. And I want to give emphasis to a particular word. You probably already know, noticed it, uh, but I want to read it and give emphasis to it. Verse number one, we'll start there. It says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found my children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it. I did everything I could to emphasize it there in the reading. But several occasions, just in these first four verses, five different times we have the word truth found. In fact, I would say this, that we could characterize the life of this lady with the word truth. And John, when he writes to her, he wants to give great emphasis to this idea of truth. Now, what do we mean when we say truth? Well, we mean something that uh, is true, something that is reality, something that is factual, not something that is subjective, not something that's preference, not something that's just what I think or just what you think, but something that cuts through what everybody thinks and presents what is actually so. I've already said it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it again. It'll make me feel good. In a world where it is hard to find the truth, I'm glad there's a place where we can find the truth. And you and I as Bible believers, if we cannot be known as people of the truth, then what could we be known as? Our desire ought to be, as a Bible-believing Christian, for our life to be characterized by truth. I want in my life to have a testimony of truth. I want people to know the things that I say, that they are true things. But more than that, I want people to know that when I am presented with truth, I receive truth. And that my life is not based upon what will make me feel better, what will allow me to jockey for position or uh, promotion in this world or what happens to be advantageous, comfortable or convenient at the moment, but that the boundaries, the parameters of my life are what is right and what is true. I would say this tonight that... In the greater context of this little letter, uh, we could describe the things that we ought to strive not to lose in this way. What could we lose? And I would say it this way, our testimony of truth. I'll tell you, in this world that we're living in, it's real easy uh, to get hooked up to that drug of convenient lies and to jettison an emphasis on the truth. There are a lot of churches in the days that we're living in 
that will uh, curry in and traffic in and merchandise in any life. If it gets people in pews, if it gets money in the plate, if it gets uh, the preacher's name in a, on, a, on a bigger marquee and in brighter lights. But I think we as God's people, we ought to value truth. It ought to be the emphasis of our life. It don't cost nothing to stick by the truth. Not materially speaking, you understand. Now, it's not going to, you're not going to have to, you're not going to have to uh, dig into your wallet to stand for the truth. You're not going to have to be spectacularly talented to stand for the truth. You don't have to be particularly bright. I'm a good testimony of that. Somebody say amen. Uh, that, no, go ahead and say amen. It's all right. I, I already know. Uh, to stand for the truth. You see, anybody can stand for the truth. We just have to commit and resolve to stand for the truth. You say, well, what truth and how do we stand for the truth? Well, we find that a little later on here in this little book. We'll say a word about it before we're done. But notice this theme of the truth in her life, what it had meant and what it had done. In verse number one, we find the impression of the truth on others' lives. He says uh, to the elder, uh, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And then he says this, and not I only but also all they that have known the truth. Here's what he says. I don't have to tell myself lies or tell you lies in order to love you and for you to love me. I hope that my relationships with people are not predicated on and, and based upon lies. I'd hope that every friendship I've got, every relationship that I've got is not based upon people having to lie to me, people having to deceive me or deceive themselves, but that they can be honest with me and tell the truth to me. There's times the truth ain't easy to bear. Well, Jim was talking about it earlier when he was talking about them marriage headaches. Amen. I don't know who requested prayer for that. You really pray for them folks. Amen. Them marriage headaches ain't easy. Uh, listen, there's times that it's hard to hear the truth. But I, listen, I'd rather be told an uncomfortable truth than a comfortable lie. I would a lot rather have the truth spoken to me. And then beyond that, I want to have a testimony such that people know that when I speak, I'm telling the truth best as I understand it, best as I know it. I'm not infallible. Neither are you. God's word is. Amen. If we, if we stand right where God's word is, we'll be on good ground. But there are times in our life we have to have thoughts and opinions that maybe the word of God does not touch explicitly on. And I want people to know that when they hear me speak, they're hearing the truth. Not a half truth, not a small truth, but the absolute unmitigated truth. And you as a Christian ought to have a testimony of valuing and loving the truth. So I see the impression of truth in verse number one. Verse two, I see the indwelling of truth. John says, here's why I'm writing to, to you. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. And that an interesting statement. I would say this, that truth as an ideal maybe could not be spoken of in this way. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I don't think that in our natural condition, the truth dwells in us. I don't believe that in and of ourselves as human beings that we gravitate towards truth. You look around at unregenerate society and tell me which is more appealing to them, truth or lies. I don't think in and of ourselves we gravitate towards truth. And this this whole notion, this whole idea, you know, Henry David Thoreau and the idea of the noble savage and that if we had just been left alone apart from society, we would have just sort of stumbled our way to God. I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. Amen. What I find is that if God hadn't shown the light of revelation and illumination from heaven, mankind would have stayed in his darkness, stayed in his wickedness, stayed in his unrighteousness. I don't think that the truth dwells inside of man naturally. Now, wait a minute. He's not just talking about people that are natural. He's also talking about people that are spiritual. He's writing to a saved individual. And when we think about truth, not as an ideal, but rather as an individual. Now, you say, preacher, how can we think about truth as an individual? Well, that's simple. You remember in John 14, and John should know, amen, the Holy Ghost used him to pin down John 14. He remembered how that Jesus looked at Philip and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Say, preacher, what makes a man's life true because he has the truth living in him through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, not any of us that are, that are true by nature, but it's that regenerating work that God does in our life when he saves us, transforms our life. I'll be honest with you, the average lost person don't care about the truth. They care about expediency. And that's the reason the world's in the shape that it's in. I'll say whatever I gotta say to get ahead and get whatever I want. When a man gets born again, now the witness of truth is in him, and when he lies, it bothers him because there's one inside that says, now you know that's not the truth. So we see the indwelling of truth. The truth dwells in us through Christ Jesus and through the person of the Holy Spirit of God more distinctly. He is dwelling in us. And what makes us a people of truth is that regenerate work in our life. Now, we as believers can choose to 
quench that work and we can choose to disregard and ignore that work and, and choose to live a life. But we should not do that. Rather, we should let the Lord have His will and way in our life. And when we do that, we'll be a people of the truth. And then I notice the imprimatur of truth. Look at verse 3. He says, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And in case you're wondering who He is, He says, the Son of the Father. Amen. I love that. You don't find, I mean, often He is called the Son of God. Often He called God the Father His Father. But John makes no bones about it. He says, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father. I like that. Then He says this, in truth and love. He's saying if if mercy and peace comes from God, if grace is with you from the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be with you in truth and in love. We could say it this way, that truth is a divine quality. It is a divine attribute. Uh, you could maybe go a step further and say this, that truth is part of the essence of God, although I would maybe flip it around and say that God is the is the origin of truth. He spoke and it is. So in other words, he, he's, he is not what truth is. Truth is what He is. The same way that love is not God, God is love. You want to know what love is, you look at God. You don't, want, you don't find out who God is by looking at love. You find out what love is by looking at God. Well, in the same way, you don't, you don't find out who God is by looking at truth. You find out what truth is by looking at God and saying, what does God say reality is? What does He say the truth is? But here John uh, points out the fact that when the Lord is present and having His way in a person's life, the truth that they live and dwell and walk in is a, a imprimatur. It is a signature of divine presence upon their life. Now listen, I'm not saying that there can't be a lost man that is moral to some degree by society's standard of morality. But what I am saying is that in your life and mine, those of us that are saved by the grace of God, the truth that is in us is not in us because of who we are. And our, our, I hope, rabid devotion to truth. And that's really what we ought to have. It ought to be a, a fervent and, and by the world standards, irrational commitment to truth. If we have that, it's not because it's of us. It's because it's of Him. And then what will that produce? Look at verse 4. It will, we'll see the imparting of truth. He said, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. Well, now, why did the children walk in truth? Because the parent walked in truth. He says this as we have received a commandment from the Father. John says, I as a child of God am walking in truth because my heavenly Father has given me truth. He is true. And so as a result, when I'm letting him have his will and way, I then will be true in my life. And he says, by extension, your children are walking in truth because they have seen the truth in your life. And you know what you'll find? All of us have a sphere of influence, a scope of influence, people that God puts in our life that for whatever reason... Uh, Baffling as it may seem, listen to us. I, it, one of the things I, I'll never figure out, one of my first questions to God when I get to heaven is, why'd you pick me? Not to be saved, amen, but why'd you pick me to pastor? Why'd you pick me to preach? Why would anyone listen to the things that I say? But I do find this, that when we put ourselves at God's disposal, be used of the Lord, there will be people in our life, and it may be our children, maybe our uh, our siblings, our spouse, it may be our parents, it may be our loved ones, maybe co-workers, friends, neighbors, whoever it might be, but God gives us an open door in their life. When that happens, we have a choice as to what we're going to pour into their life. And truth, as we speak of, not just generically in the sense of of accurate or, or uh, you know, credible versus inaccurate and, uh, and non-credible, but truth in the sense of divine illumination, the truth of God's Word. We ought to be pouring it into people's lives. In a world that will readily admit, throw its hands up and say, we don't know the answer. And the world, I mean, there are some that always want to pretend they have the answer. But I think by and large, the world will readily admit we don't have an answer. The way they say it is not we don't have an answer. The way they say it is pick any answer you want. But what that really means is we don't have the answer. What an opportunity we have to say, yeah, we do. We do. And not in arrogance, not in pride, but to say, listen, you're wondering if there's a God in heaven. I can tell you His name. You're wondering if there's such a thing as truth. I can give you a book full of it. Now you're wondering if, if there's a heaven. I can tell you how to get there. We have the truth and we need to be imparting it into people's lives. And it is in this context that John says, listen, we need to make sure we don't lose these things. 
This testimony of truth in our life, that people know us as people of the book, people of the Bible, people of what is true and what is righteous and what is right, that God has, through His presence in our life, He's bearing witness, shining a light of truth in other people's lives. We need to guard this character. And He points out three areas of our life where we need to guard this testimony of truth. I want you to notice them tonight and we'll be done. Look at verse 5 with me. John says this, Now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now, and I don't know if I'll say this right, but that language is so unfamiliar to us as a means and way of talking that very often all we do when we approach this verse and the ones that are similar to it in the book of First John and in the book of Third John, we often just spend all of our energy trying to untangle what is unfamiliar to us. Never asking the question, why did the Holy Ghost say it in the way that He said it? I can tell you very plainly what He is saying here. He's saying the thing that I'm commanding you to do is not some new thing. It's the thing that you've always been told to do. You need to love one another. And here's how you love one another. You love one another, not by some new doctrine, not by some new trend, not by some new uh, ways or new means, new love language that you found out, but rather through obeying and living the Word of God. But it's never dawned on you why John says it that way. It is because there is such a propensity in mankind and in the church then and today to chase after some new thing, some new strategy, some new philosophy, some new thing that he's saying, hey, don't go chasing everything, just stick by the stuff. I'd maybe say it this way. He speaks of maintaining a testimony of truth in our focus. Or we could maybe say it this way, having purity in our service. What our Christianity looks like. I can tell you this, Christianity, and I'm using that term generically, looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different places. You could walk into a Roman Catholic church and you'd find that Christianity looks like ceremony. And it looks like formalism. You'd go in there and you'd find a priest reciting in Latin and you'd find the censers swinging and the smoke uh, billowing up towards the heaven and you'd find people uh, rubbing beads and praying prayers that they do not even understand out of mere ceremony and formality and ritual. You could go down into a charismatic church and to, you'd find that Christianity looks like wild, unhinged expression of flesh and emotion. Uh, you could go to some places and you'd find Christianity looks like the preacher getting up and trying to bust everybody's hide. You could find Christianity, you could go in places and Christianity would look like the preacher standing up trying to make everybody feel like a million bucks. But what should our Christianity look like? What should our walk with God look like? Well, he points to two things. One, he points to the spirit of our Christianity. And what does he say in verse 5? That which we have from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, I understand that there is more in this book than merely ministering in love to one another. And we'll say something about it before we're done. But let us never be deceived in thinking that we can ever have Bible Christianity without love towards one another. If whatever, if whatever form of Christianity that we are engaged in does not involve in deliberately, by grace, showing love towards the brethren, then we have missed what Bible Christianity is. And in our life, in our testimony of truth, I will tell you this, that people will not long listen to the truth that we seek to proclaim to them if they feel like it's coming from a place of bitterness, mean-spiritedness, arrogance, or pride. If they feel like, if I'll just tell you for me, you ever had somebody talking to you and you could tell real quick that they weren't talking so you could hear, they were talking so they could talk. You ever met somebody like that? You ever been somebody like that? And what happens when, when that takes place? You know, I, I don't know about you, but the thought always runs through my mind. Do you need me here for this? I mean, can I go do something else and, and you can just keep talking? And, you know, if, if me being here don't matter anyway, you know, some people's Christianity is like that. Uh, in other words, it is merely a, a self-aggrandizing expression of their own morality. They do what they do so people can see how great they are rather than doing what they're doing so that people can see how great Christ is and trying to show the love of Christ to that person. I would say we need to make sure the spirit of our Christianity never, never gets off kilter. It never gets such that it is that it is more focused on maintaining a 
position of, of morality or righteousness, self-righteousness in men's eyes than it is in truly, genuinely expressing the love of Christ in someone's life. Now, somebody's going to holler out. If you ain't saying it out loud, you're saying it in your heart. You compromise. You're just saying, well, I just love everybody. Don't matter what we do, we just love everybody. But now, wait a minute. What does the Bible say here? He talks about the spirit of our Christianity. And by the way, that should be the spirit. Yeah, the spirit of it, the attitude, the disposition of it ought to be we love people, we love folks, love other church folks, love lost folks, we love one another. But now what's the substance of it? What then does that look like? Look at verse number 6, we find the substance. He says this is love. So in other words, there's some things that people call love that is not love. There are some uh, spirits and attitudes and dispositions of modern Christendom that are not love. But this is what he said is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. I love that. John's saying, you want some new commandment? Here's a new commandment. It's the old commandment. Say, you want some new thing? Here's the new thing. It's the old thing. Keep doing the right thing. Keep Stay the course. And we could say it this way. The substance of our Christianity, the spirit of it ought to be that we love one another. The substance of it ought to be that we are uh, following closely, adhering deliberately to the truth of the Word of God. The greatest way you can love somebody the greatest way that you can love them is by living the Word of God in front of them and having a biblical life that gives reverence to and deference to the truth in your life. We very often, and this really boils down to a lot of what Christ spoke about when He talked about the moat and the beam, is that we very often spend all of our time trying to fix other people's Christianity blind to the deficits in our own. We spend all of our time trying to get everybody else to walk right when we won't walk right. Well, I'll tell you this, you ain't going to help them walk right till you're walking right. The substance of our Christianity ought to be that we love them, but how do we love them? We love them by following the Bible. We love them by living a life of, of not self-righteousness, but of the Spirit's righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but Christ's righteousness in front of them. We live a Bible-believing life. I'll tell you this, people will watch and listen to what you say. They will watch how you live. They will follow your example far more than they will follow your exhortation. You can tell them that you love them, but if you are not leading them by example in biblical truth, then what you are doing, though you may be telling you them that you love them, what you are doing is not an act of love because you are showing them how to live a life of rebellion and disobedience. We can proclaim that we love somebody. We can, we can uh, beg for them to believe that we love them. But the greatest way that we can truly love them is to live the life of Christ in front of them. So we see maintaining a testimony of truth in our focus. Let me say number two, we see that he exhorts him concerning maintaining this testimony of truth, not just in our focus, but in our faith. Now, the term faith can be used basically in two ways in the Word of God. Uh, the word faith is used practically. Uh, in other words, the effectual dependence upon God, right? We're placing our faith in Him, meaning we are taking God at His Word, believing what He said, and living in, in appropriate response to that. But then faith can be used as regards a body of doctrine and of belief. And that's what John is talking about here. He's not talking about faith in a practical sense. He was in verses 5 and 6. But in verses 7 and down into verse number 9, he talks about our doctrine, what we believe. Does what we believe matter? It does. It does. If what we believe matters, or does not matter, excuse me, if what we believe does not matter, why did God give us so much to believe? <laughs> I know that's silly to say it that way, but it's the truth. I mean, couldn't God have just said, hey, I'm God, this is Jesus, he died for you, I love you, believe in me, and move on? But instead, he give us what we call the whole counsel of God, right? He give us the entirety of the word of God, filled with doctrine, filled with truth, filled with understanding of who he is. And it's important that we believe the right thing. I'll tell you, we can claim to be people of the book. We can claim to be people of the Bible. We can claim that truth matters to us. But if we do not respect truth enough to be right in our doctrine, then whatever we may say about our respect of the truth is not going to mean very much in the eyes of the world. One of the great sins of modern day Christianity, and I'm, I ain't talking about, uh, you know, some abstract rando denomination out somewhere that you ain't never heard of. I'm talking about Bible believing. I'm talking about independent Baptist people in the pew today. One of the great tragedies, very few people can tell you what they believe. And a far smaller number could ever tell you why they believe it. Uh, now, there's all of us have blind spots in our understanding, our knowledge of the Word of God. I'm not claiming that I have all of the answers. But I am saying that we ought to determine that part of the work of our life 
is to, to be well-read, well-versed, and well-grounded in the truth of the Word of God. And understand that you may not sense deeply that absence of grounding in your life, but the devil's going to be looking for it, and he's going to be trying to destroy you through it. Notice what he says here, talking about this, this testimony of truth in our faith, purity in our doctrine. The first thing he warns them against in verse 7 is a weakening of our faith or a weakening of our doctrinal position. He says in verse 7, Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, it would be hard to overstate the severity of John's language here. He is not talking about just uh, some TV preacher he heard at 3 a.m. across TVN. This was a very present problem in the bodies of Christ that he administered in. The book of 1 John is pretty much wholly dedicated to uh, dealing with and rooting out the heresy of Gnosticism. Now, I don't have time, and you don't have time tonight, for us to go into a deep dive of what Gnosticism was. But essentially, Gnosticism was based around three or four different ideas. It was the idea that these individuals, the Gnostics, that they had a special revelation of God that you couldn't learn from the Bible, that God had to give you directly. That's why John says you have no need that any man teach you, but that self-same anointing that you have received of the Father shall teach you all things. He's not saying that we don't need to be taught the Word of God, but he's saying we can be taught from the Word of God. He's not saying you don't need to be taught the Word of God. He's saying you don't need to be taught from something else or other than the Word of God. The Holy Ghost can take the Word of God and teach it. And then they also believe that sin was a relative concept. As, uh, they believed, in other words, they had so uh, relativized, I don't know if that's a word or not, me and George Bush think it is, but uh, they had made, made so relevant the idea of sin that no man really could sin. Now, if there ain't a more relevant present day, I'm talking about like it came right out of today's newspaper problem than that, I don't know what there is. See, here's, here's the neat truth of it, right? If you make if you make sin everything, then you make it nothing. If you make it nothing, you make it everything. And if you can do that, then mankind never sees a distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Some men through license, some men through legalism, but both of them water down the truth of what God teaches right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, sin and, and, and what is true in the Word of God. And so they believed that a man really couldn't couldn't sin, that all sin was really relative, and who really knows what sin is, and you've got your opinion, i got my opinion. And uh, when you do that, the conclusion you come to is really we have no sin. And it is because of that that John said, if any man say he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth. He says the truth is not in him. Uh, he said, listen, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. He says, I'm not out here peddling license to you. I I'm not peddling permissiveness to you. I'm not saying you ought to sin. But I am saying if any man say he hath no sin, he's deceived himself. The truth is not in him. Uh, my little children, I write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who was uh, who bore our sins, who was the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Here's what he says. God doesn't turn a blind eye to the sin problem. He dealt with the sin problem. And for mankind to turn a blind eye to the sin problem is not to deal with it, but it is to deceive himself. So that was part of what they believed. Another thing they believed is that uh, Jesus Christ did not physically, visibly raise from the dead. Now, this is still a prevalent thought and idea today, particularly uh, in academia. In fact, if you've got an NIV Bible in your hand, if you were to look in the last chapter of the book of Mark, Used to, they'd take it completely out. And I guess that kind of spooked church folks seeing part of their Bible missing. But you'll see either a line or very often you'll see a little uh, a little note in the margin that will say these last 12 verses of the book of Mark are not found in the most ancient manuscripts. Now, I, I don't have time to blow that into a million pieces. I wish I did, but you don't want to be here till 10 o'clock. But suffice it to say, part of the reason for that is because there has always been an attack on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This idea you could go back to origin in Egypt, in Alexandria, back in the first century. He was the one that really promulgated that in Gnosticism. The idea that Jesus Christ raising from the dead didn't literally happen. It's just sort of a fairy tale, sort of a fable, sort of a good spiritual parable that is given so that men will feel better. I got news for you. Hey, listen, Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically, bodily. Hey, listen, if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, you're dead in your sins. Your faith is in vain. If the resurrection ain't the resurrection, then what are we doing here tonight? Don't none of it mean anything. And so Gnosticism was infecting the early New Testament church. And John spent all of 1 John battling this. And there's other things you could really spend time diving into it. 
But that is part of the reason that he says in verse number 7, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. What were they seeking to do? It does not say who confess not that Jesus Christ lived or that he was real or that he existed, but rather that he came in the flesh. I don't have time to deal with all of the doctrinal implications if a man was to hold that position. But suffice it to say, what they were trying to get men to do is not to completely jettison the idea of Jesus, but rather to relegate him to being merely an Aesop's fable, merely a Grimm's fairy tale, just a, just sort of a good story that you tell people, an avatar of man's inner goodness and morality. John says that stuff is straight out of hell. It's straight from the devil. It's deceit. It's an antichrist doctrine. What he's saying is this, hey, listen, here's what, here's what the world's going to try to do and the devil's going to try to do. We see a weakening of our faith. And one of the things that can destroy our testimony of truth is when we allow what we believe to be weakened and to be compromised and to be mitigated by the opinions of the world today. I, listen, I, I, I'm not blind to reality. I'm not blind to science. I'm not blind to logic and to reason. Men probably would say I am. But I just simply believe that uh, those things can coexist with the truth of the Word of God in as much as they can coexist. But if there comes a divergent point where, where my science textbook tells me what my Bible says is not true, I'm sorry, my science textbook, textbook did not save me, did not regenerate me, did not make me a new man in Christ Jesus. And if I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt, it sure enough ain't going to be to that, it's going to be to this Bible. We do not need to allow our faith to be weakened. And I listen, if time would permit it, I could spend hours talking about ways in which science at one time was erroneous and uh, had to catch up with the Word of God. I mean, listen, before science ever knew, L.B.R. Lake and you say this, before science ever knew anything about germs and about virology, uh, the law of the leper was given in the Word of God that the leper was to stay downwind of men and if he came near him, he was to wear a covering on his mouth and cry, unclean, unclean. It took mankind 4,000 years to catch up with what God knew about germs. I mean, hey, listen, uh, when, when uh, the Roman Catholic Church was, was executing people uh, who uh, claimed that the earth was round, and by the way, Man, it's funny we got to say this nowadays, but I believe the earth is round. What a weird world we live in, man. If that offends you, good. I mean, I don't know what else to say for you. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not mad at you, but I'm just saying. There was, when the Roman, listen, when, when modern society, uh, endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church was executing men that said that the world was round, God had already talked about the circle of the earth. I listen, I, I'm not against science in any way, shape, fashion, or form. I think science, as Isaac Newton once said, is the study of the signature of God. I'm not against science. God's not against science. But God does warn us against science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called. Uh, weaponized, propagandized, agendized against the Word of God. So, uh, listen, if there comes a place where science tells me to put away my Bible, I'll put away the science. And I'll just believe what my Bible says. I'm not going to allow my faith to be weakened. We, if we're going to be people of truth, we shouldn't apologize for the truth. doesn't mean we have to be ugly or mean-spirited, but we shouldn't apologize for the truth. And we shouldn't allow the truth to be watered down in some effort to make kind with the world. The world is not, and I promise, the world is not as interested in truth as God is. Is not as interested in truth as God is. So we see a weakening of our faith as a danger. Look at verse 9, and uh, here in, we'll almost be done with the introduction. I need to quit making that joke, but let me tell you why I don't, because I will accept nervous laughter as laughter, all right? And I know you're la you ain't laughing because it's funny, you're laughing because you're trying to figure out if you're getting ready to bail on me, but it makes me feel good to hear it anyway. Verse 9 says, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now, let me be clear about the context of this. John is not warning them that in departing from the Lord, they're going to lose their salvation and be as though they never were saved or any of that nonsense. He is moving into a greater warning about false teachers and about their interaction with them. We'll say a word about that in a moment. But it's interesting to note that when a man begins to compromise on the issue of the literal veracity and accuracy of the Word of God, uh, in all things, but particularly as regards the testimony of Jesus Christ, it will not be long and they will depart from the doctrine of Christ. The person of Christ is only compelling if he is who God says he is. If he is not everything that God says he is, it won't be long you will wander away from him. 
if your perspective of him is lower than what God's word teaches him to be. So it's no wonder that these folks that are saying, hey, listen, Jesus Christ, he's come, but he's not come in the flesh. It's really, it's just, it's a good story. It's good this, it's good that. If he is not our savior, then we will look to something else to save us. So they depart from the doctrine of Christ. And uh, here John says, listen, those people that do that, they don't have God. They don't have God. The, the people that want to say, well, you know, Jesus is good, but, you know, Muhammad and Buddha and, you know, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Smith. And, you know, I mean, really, it's probably anyway. I mean, really, what, whatever you want to believe, all roads lead to heaven. Those people don't have God. It's all right. I'll say it. Those people don't have God. They don't have God. I, I was reading just this past. Have I made you mad? I've not tried to make you mad. But let's go ahead and see if this does it. For some reason, this makes people mad when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was reading a quote just back of this that Billy Graham gave on the Robert Schuller Hour of Power. You know Robert Schuller. Young people don't know who Robert Schuller is. But Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, well-known heretic, was interviewing Billy Graham. And Billy Graham made the statement. They were talking about Muslims and Buddhists. And he said, you know, those people over there, they've never heard the name of Jesus, but, you know, they've believed in whatever life that they have. And I can't help but think that they know God and that they'll be in heaven one day. Listen, whatever you might like or dislike, think or don't think about Billy Graham, I don't care. I'm not interested. Don't come up and tell me afterwards. I'm not interested in it. But he was wrong about that. It was wrong when Joel Osteen said it, said it to Larry King on 60 Minutes. And it was wrong when Billy Graham said it to Robert Schuller on the Hour of Power. This idea that a man can believe anything he wants and go to heaven does not find any purchase anywhere in this book. When a person departs from salvation by faith through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, him alone is the finished work as the all-sufficiency of salvation. When he departs from that, it is an indication that they have not God. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, don't you go following those people. He's saying, listen, if any man abide not in the doctrine of Christ, he hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, hath, he hath both the Father and the Son. He's saying, don't go chasing those people. I would say this, there's a weakening of our faith, but there's a danger of a wandering of our faith. If we want to be people of truth, we've got to stick close to the truth. There, listen, there, there's not a hair's breadth of difference between the truth and a lie. The truth is a very narrow path here, and the lie is a vast wide one. And sometimes we think as long as we're not at the far end of that lie, we're okay. But when you step a toe from the truth to the lie, you might as well be at the other end of it. Stick by the truth. Follow closely to the truth. You say, preacher, how can I do that? Well, that's simple. Learn the truth. Know the truth. Love the truth. Preacher, there's things in that book I can't understand. Oh, that's going to stop you? Then it ought to stop all of us. There's things that I don't understand. There's things I don't have the answer to. That does not mean I can't read and believe and trust what God's Word teaches. So I would say this. We have to maintain a testimony of truth in our faith. And then finally tonight, we need to maintain a testimony of truth in our fellowship. In our fellowship. Look at verse number 10. Uh, John says, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the doctrine of Christ. He says this, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So there's three ways here, and there's probably many, but three in our text that a person could have a testimony of truth and lose that testimony of truth. One, he could maintain the truth, but maintain it in such a way that his spirit is not indicative of Jesus Christ. That what he's doing, he, he is walking according to truth, but he is riding it like a war chariot to trample down anybody in his path rather than viewing it as a means to throw a lifeline to people that are trapped in deception and in a lie. That's what he deals with in the first. And in that endeavor, we shouldn't deviate from the truth to try to express love. Uh, we shouldn't live like the, uh, the, the lost man to try to show the lost man that we love him. No, we live like Christ, and through that we show him a way out of his lost condition, that as Christ has changed us, Christ can change him. Another way we could lose this testimony of truth is by not maintaining purity in our doctrine, allowing what we believe to be weakened by the world or to wander away from the clear teaching of the Word of God. But there is another way. There is another way where we could believe everything that's right and we can love people with the right spirit but still wreck our testimony of truth so that when people would look at us, they would not say, now that's a person that is a Bible believer that believes the truth, that stands for the truth no matter what, and that's through our associations. I would say it this way, purity in our relationships. A testimony of truth in regards to our fellowship. He says some sometime these people are going to come by and they're going to knock on your door 
and they're going to want to get up under your roof and they're and they're not doing it because they want uh, themselves to be with you. They want other people to see themselves with you. They they want to, Here's what they want to do. They want to piggyback off of your credibility. Uh, they want to come along and it's like they did in the Old Testament when they built that false altar uh, out of the tribe of Dan, out of the city of Samaria. You remember this and they brought it down and put it in the tabernacle of worship and they had a false altar here and the true brazen altar here and they said that the one sanctified the other that's what people want to do with truth and a lie Uh, they want to take what is a lie and yoke it up to the truth thinking that the truth is going to sanctify that lie listen mark her down the world is going to constantly come knocking at your door trying to get you to sidle up the side and yoke up with things that are wrong and untrue What is our responsibility as Christians? Well, he warns us against two things. One, embracing wrong doctrine in the matter of fellowship. He says, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. If you spend time with bad doctrine, pretty soon bad doctrine will get its roots in you. Will get its roots in you. I, me and my wife were talking on the way in and I'd never tell you who it is. Come up to me afterwards, I'll tell you who it is. But we were coming in on the way and we were talking about a pastor in town that has held a position, a biblical position for, I don't know, 20, 30 years that is now deviated, laid aside that biblical position and has gone into a, a wrong position. And I've heard this from two or three different individuals. This isn't just hearsay or rumor. I've heard it from a bunch of different places. Well, what happened to that guy? Well, that guy started hanging with a crowd that believed the wrong thing. And he, he wasn't, he was not fortifying himself in the truth and seeking to reach and show them. But he was just yoking up with them, spending time with them. And pretty soon, their bad doctrine became his bad doctrine. If we allow ourselves, this is part of the reason I don't spend a lot of time doing deep dives on what cults believe. Uh, If you want to know what a cult believes, I promise you, sooner or later, they're going to knock on your door and want to explain it all. Instead, I'd rather spend time knowing what the truth says. What the truth says. Uh, We have no responsibility to have fellowship with wrong doctrine. There are people that will tell us that if we will not fellowship with people uh, that believe the wrong thing, we are mean-spirited. That's not true. That's not true. Hey, hey, listen, I don't lock my doors at night because I hate those that are outside. I lock my doors at night because I love those that are inside. Uh, I'm just going to say it again. That's all right. We'll try that one again. We'll back up and try. I don't lock them doors because I hate all those other people. I lock them doors because I love the people inside. I, listen, I, I don't I don't maintain separation from bad doctrine because I'm walking around mad about the truth and mad at them. I do it because I value my wife, my children, my church, my testimony. Those things matter. And if they matter, we need to guard them. And listen, there's going to be people get mad, get upset at you because you won't uh, encourage or embrace wrong doctrine, wrong teaching. And all you can do is just smile and, and, and try to be kind and say, look, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to stand where the truth is. I'm going to stand where the truth is. So there's a danger of embracing wrong doctrine in fellowship. And then I'm going to preach this last one and then sneak out the back door. <laughs> uh, look at the end of verse 10. He says this. We'll start at the beginning, verse 10. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive them not into your house. Then he says this, neither bid him God speed. This is why. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. To bid a man God speed was to grant an endorsement of their ministry. It was to say, I believe God's in what you're doing. And I'm praying that God would bless and further what you're doing. Now, it's interesting because I don't know about you, but most people that use that term, and it's occasional, you'll hear someone even say it today. They'll say, well, God speed. Most of the time, it's just like a throwaway statement. You know, it's not really something, Brother Charlie, where, 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 I mean, I don't know that I've ever looked at someone, stopped, prayed about what I was about to say and looked at him and said, God speak. I don't know that I've ever done that in my entire life. It's just sort of like, hey, listen, God speak, love you. But you know why that's so dangerous? Not because of what you meant to say, but because of what others have just heard. I would say it this way. There's a danger in embracing wrong doctrine and fellowship but there is a danger in endorsing wrong doctrine in friendliness. I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. God didn't call none of us to be mean. If he did, we're really serving God. <laughs> God didn't call nobody to be mean or to be ugly or to be unkind. But I will tell you this. I have learned this in this world that we're living in. People are so craving affirmation that if you are not bold and clear about what you believe, they will take your silence to be an endorsement and a confirmation. Can I give you a quick example? And I really, I'm done preaching. But can I give you a quick example of it? Back in 2016, 2015 really, when President Trump was running, 
uh, and he was our president, right? He was our president. That's still true. Uh, Twitter can't cancel that, right? Uh, when he was running, I was not a big Trump person. I had misgivings about him. Uh, I had concerns. My concerns really didn't have to do with anything that he said. It was that he had been of a political persuasion his whole life, and I thought, is this guy really going to be conservative? You know, if he gets elected, or is he just going to be a Trojan horse? Is he going to get in there and and just do everything that uh, you know the left and and liberals want him to do? And so I, you know, I was sort of concerned about that. And I'd be talking to people, and you know, they'd start talking about Trump, and they'd say, "Yeah, man," and and we'd start talking about criticisms we had of him. And then pretty soon I started to get the idea, like, I have issues with him, and you have issues with him, but the issues I have with him are not the issues that you have with him. You have a problem that he is too conservative. I have a problem that I'm not sure he's conservative enough. Uh, he would say things, you know, he would say things like, uh, you know, people would say, well, he, he instituted a Muslim ban. And I would say, well, no, he didn't. I kind of wish he did, but he didn't. That's all right. Be mad. That's okay. What I'm saying is we were talking and agreeing and yet talking about two entirely separate things. Can I say there's a truth that applies to that as regards the Word of God? You can talk to a Jehovah's Witness and agree all day long and not be saying the same thing. You can talk to a Seventh-day Adventist and agree all day long about everything and be talking about two entirely separate things. I'm not advocating unkindness, but I am saying we need to be bold and distinct enough in our stand for the truth that we make sure people understand exactly what we know and understand truth to be. And oftentimes, in an endeavor to be kind, we can allow bad doctrine, bad truth, dangerous ideas, scripturally speaking, to spread and metastasize because we are so polite, we're unwilling to call them out. We are so kind, we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to make somebody upset, that we are unwilling to stand clearly on what the truth says. I never want my silence to be an endorsement of, of falsehood. I never want to be quiet. I don't mean that i got to make it my job to get in everybody's business. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I don't ever just want to smile and go along to get along when destructive things are ripping people apart, their testimonies, their families, their Christian walk. We have a responsibility. And you know what will happen? They'll hear you say Godspeed and they'll say, well, he must believe what they believe. Well, she must believe what they believe. Because they said God's speed. We wouldn't say it as God's speed. But we'd say things like, well, you know, I'm just glad the Lord's using somebody, you know. And what people will do is look at it and they'll say, well, you must believe what they believe. You say, oh, people would never do that. You don't know lost people like I know them then. They just assume, hey, you must agree with what they have to say. So I, I think we ought to endeavor to have a testimony of truth in our lives. To, to make sure that we are not allowing any room for error or falsehood to take root and grow in our life. We ought to make sure if we're known as anything in our life, it ought to be that we are people of the book, people of the Bible, Bible-believing Christian. A lot of people call themselves Bible believers that don't believe the Bible. I want to be a Bible-believing Christian. Let's bow together tonight. Uh, let's have a musician come play. I, I, I really don't know. I don't know what God may have dealt with you about tonight. Uh, there could be some things in your life about relationships that you have. It could be some situations you found yourself in where you didn't speak boldly in your uh, relationship with somebody. Or there could be something in your life where you were right in every way, but the Spirit was wrong. Whatever God may have dealt with you about, I want you to have an opportunity to meet with the Lord, to speak with Him about it and let Him have His will and way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.